we are going to go back, kind of review and introduce by jumping right into the text. We're in verse number 10. We'll go 10 through 12. I am in the New King James, which is usually what I am in when we are going through this. Acts 19, verse 10. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. So this means for two years while in a rented school. Historians say probably from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. they had this school because that's when other people weren't using this school. So they rented a school to have church, and the great apostle Paul would teach for in this five-hour span uh, every day for two years. So it's hundreds and hundreds of hours of teaching by the great Apostle Paul. So is it any wonder that it says, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So, so uh, Paul plods along for two years. His influence is felt far and wide. Jews and Gentiles alike, but it's not just the result of his amazing teaching, insight that he's conveying, his technique, such as classical dialogue and debate. It says also that God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. This is strange scripture. These are weird passages. I mean, I don't think it's an insult to the Lord to say, God, this is strange. Even God said this was unusual. This is unusual. So let's unpack this. Jesus did, and I've got to go back. I've got to lay some foundation. So let me lay some foundation. Let's unpack it by first going back, putting a little foundation And we'll come back to the text. Jesus did what he did, not because he was God in flesh, although he was, but he did what he did because he was a man in covenant with God, anointed by the Holy Spirit. Acts 10.33 says this, how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Ghost who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus laid aside his Godhead powers. Philippians 2, it's the humiliation of the Christ. The humiliation, he chose to live as a human being, being born of a woman. Tender, an ordinary baby, although nothing ordinary about him, and yet with his mother in a manger on the hay, like a stranger on Christmas Day. It was just a a beautiful story, but it's the story of the humiliation of the Christ. Later he'll suffer and die, ultimate humiliation, but then we have the exaltation of the Christ and the glorification of the Christ. But it all started with the humiliation. He humbled himself and chose to behave as a servant, 
obedient to the will and the word of God. He said, I have come in the volume of this book to do your will, O God. And that's in Hebrews quoting the Psalms. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, that same Holy Spirit anointing fell on 120 in the upper room and then on 3,000 later that day and really on every other believer as the church exploded. When Paul came to Ephesus in Acts 19, he found those followers of John. That same anointing of the Holy Spirit fell on those 12 and every other believer as that church grew at Ephesus and throughout all of Asia. And here's the deal. That anointing is not just for the believer. That anointing was not just for the Christ, so the Christ could be identified as the anointed one. That anointing was to flow through the Christ to people with needs. And the anointing that was on the Christ is, we see, now on the Christian, and that anointing is not just for the benefit of the Christian, but is to flow through the Christian to help others in need. Okay? The body of Christ. The body of Christ 2,000 years ago was powerful and anointed. The scripture says that he had the spirit without measure. There's the implication, the idea that we have the spirit in a measure if that's even comprehensible, that we could have the Holy Spirit in a measure. But here's the deal. Together as the body of Christ, there's more and more of that measure coming together for a strength and a flow. That's why it's important to be in a community of faith. Lone Rangers don't cut it when it comes to being Christians and and living out the mandate of the Word of God and the call of God on our lives, it takes a community where we live in community and the anointing flows through us and amongst us to reach and touch needs. It was all centralized in Jesus Christ. Now it's in the body of Christ, which is multifaceted, okay? Are you with me? So going back and looking at that, Jesus said in John 14, 12, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. In a nutshell, his going to his Father is the idea of the glorification of the Christ and the sending of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the anointing. And so he's saying, because I'm going away, the Holy Spirit that's on me is coming on you. And he who believes in me will do the same works that I do and greater works. The greater works is controversial. Does that mean more works? Is that quality or quantity? How can you do any better quality-wise than the ministry of Jesus Christ? But he was only ministering in a particular area at a particular time. And now we have the church worldwide, the church universal. And so it, I believe, is a reference to the amount, the the number, greater works, more works will he do because I go to my Father. The idea is this. 
Mark 16, 17. These signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they'll cast out demons, speak with new tongues. This is stuff you don't hear preached anymore in church. Can I just say this? We like, I appreciated what happened. We blew up wildlife kids and blew up our schedule Sunday, but I appreciated you flowing that way this past Sunday, making room, making time. Time to the Holy Spirit is like gasoline to a fire. You've got to give it oxygen and, and fuel. And time is one of those things that feeds the fire. It's a sacrifice of our time. Like, like us being here on a Wednesday night, that's a sacrifice. The, the Holy Spirit is not uh, uh, averse, uh, uh, unaware of that sacrifice that's being made. So if we're going to be here, we might as well have church, right? We might as well have a move of God instead of just a program and a presentation. I've told you before, and fasten your seatbelts for 2017 because I am sick. I'm sick of program church. And we have a program. We have an agenda. But I want a move of God. I want a move of God more than anything. I want a demonstration of the Spirit. So Paul was spending five hours a day preaching the Word But there was also a season of ministry, had to be, of ministry. He had talked about his own ministry. I didn't come just with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. He said the the works of an apostle were done among you. And he talks about these miracles. The idea is this. He preached, yes, but there was also a flow of the Spirit that was supernatural. Supernatural. And that comes about because of the finished work of Christ, these signs, these signs, these works would be done by men and women, listen, just like Jesus, men and women who are in covenant with God and anointed by the Spirit. If Jesus did what he did because he was the Son of God, then when he turns around and says, the works that I do, you'll do, and greater works, I'm doomed because I wasn't born immaculately. I wasn't born outside of the realm of sin and whatever. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying. So I don't have a prayer. I don't have a hope. How can I? I was, I'm not like that. My dad's Caleb. My mom's Linda. They ain't perfect. And, and Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary, and, and the Holy Spirit overshadowed. It was different. But if he did what he did because he was a man walking in covenant, anointed by the Spirit of God, then I've got a hope and I've got a prayer because I'm in a covenant with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, and I've been anointed with the same Holy Spirit. So when we pray for a handkerchief and when we anoint people with oil, it's not that I have any confidence in these hands, but I got confidence in my covenant, in my covenant partner, and with the anointing of God. Hallelujah. We don't walk this path by ourselves, folks. We have a covenant partner that is with us. So the miracles done in Ephesus are done by Paul or by way of Paul, by way of the Holy Spirit's anointing, but still done through, he said it, his hands. 
Through his hands, Luke put it like that. Through his hands, these miracles, unusual miracles took place to bless people, to push the message forward, to advertise, to heal, to deliver. I believe what made the difference is Paul, like Jesus Christ, knew who he was in the Word. He knew who he was in the Word. I'm going to tell you something. We have to develop a greater appreciation for this book. We have to devour this book. Christians who don't eat the Word are malnourished and on the verge of starving to death. Christians who don't eat this book, who don't eat the Word, Christians like that are easy targets and prey for the devil. You say, where's so-and-so now? They used to come to church. Where'd they go? Where'd they drift off to? If they are not steadily feeding on the Word, I'm telling you, the devil will steal them away and take their relationship from God uh, with God away from them. And, and it'll happen in our lives as well. We have to have a strong understanding of the Word. And, and I don't mean you've got to be a genius, and I don't mean you've got to be a theologian, but you've got to eat that book and let, listen, the Holy Spirit reveal the truth to you. Now, Paul knew who he was in the Word. He knew who he was. Uh, Jesus, in Luke 4, the Bible says, you know, he, he came out of the wilderness. He had overcome by the word when no one was watching. Three main temptations. That's a powerful story. I love that story. He comes out of the temptation having overcome. He walks straight into synagogue. And the Bible says that he, took, he went up and he took the scrolls and he opened them up. And he found the place where it was written. He went to Isaiah 61. He, he, that wasn't like, Already out. He opened and found and dug, got the right scroll, opened. He found it and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach recovery of sight to the blind, uh, to, to uh, freedom to the bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And, and the Bible says that he closed it and he sat down and everybody was staring at him. And he said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, what I just read to you is who I am. That's me right there. And everybody got ticked off and mad at him and wanted to murder him, wanted to literally take him and throw him off the side of a cliff. Why? Because he had the audacity to stand on the word and say, this book is talking about me. That is me right there. He found himself in the word, and he stood on that, and he walked in that that kind of confidence when you see yourself in the Word is very powerful. Paul would write back to the church at Ephesus. I mentioned it last time. It bears repeating. He was praying that they would have the same revelation that he obviously had about who he was in Christ. Ephesians 1, he says in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power 
toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now listen, this is packed, jam-packed with power, authority, position, placement, who we are, who we've been made, who Christ is, and our authority, his authority that flows through the body over the spirit realm. And Paul's saying, I wish you had a revelation of this. That's my prayer. And obviously Paul already had it. Now I want to deal with this idea of revelation just for a moment. Are you with me? How is this for a last Wednesday? Oh, wait, we have another one, don't we? Never mind. Let's deal with this idea of revelation. This book, the Bible is the word of God, but we do not have to have a necessarily exclusively an intellectual understanding of it. That's not how it works. There is a spiritual reality that has to be revealed. And this is what's controversial, and this is why people get mad. I've told you before, I used to think, man, if, if, if I believe I was taught to teach Bible studies. Man, you've got to teach Bible studies. If you don't teach Bible studies, you're probably going to hell. That's what I was taught growing up. I was going through some of these notes I found in my mom's attic digging around the other day. And these little notes were, were, were me just saying, I need a greater burden for the lost. I need a burden for souls. What's wrong with me? I've got to reach more people. Like, that's the way I was... Uh, broken into this thing, man, like, I just, uh, the, the weight of the world was on DH, this high school student, you know, like, I got to reach the lost, that's my responsibility, and, and so I, I was constantly trying to do it, and I would teach Bible studies, Bible studies, and, and, and as I would teach those Bible studies, when I'd come across somebody who said they didn't believe the Bible, it was over, over, I'm like, you don't believe the Bible, and it takes believing the Bible to be saved, so there's no need for me to teach you the Bible, because you don't believe the Bible's the Word of God. I just, I was always just, it was just, it was over. I just didn't know what to do with that. I was like, you're going to hell. I'm sorry. You know, there's nothing I can do. I tried, but you don't believe the Bible. And then I realized the Bible's written for people who don't believe the Bible. You're not born believing the Bible. And we got North American mentality where we think everybody's a Christian. You're not born a Christian. You're not born believing the Bible. The Bible is a spiritually discerned, spiritually revealed book. And listen, you don't have to believe the Bible. That's what I tell people. You don't have to believe the Bible. I love it when you tell me you don't believe the Bible because I know you're honest. You ain't religious. And if I can just open the Bible and just begin to tell you these stories, you're going to have to resist faith coming because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, especially coming from the lips of somebody that does believe. As I begin to convey these stories to you, my faith is going to become contagious to you and you're going to get the infection and you're going to be fighting not to believe. That's how powerful the word is. But how does that work? The Holy Spirit gets involved. The author, the Holy Spirit inspired men to write as they were moved on. And as, as they wrote, you know, it's, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So that author, the Holy Spirit... As the word is taught and preached, the Holy Spirit does things in the heart and in the spirit that the intellect just can't always grasp. I've, I've had 
professors who taught me scripture that didn't even believe the Bible. They were brilliant. They knew the languages, but, but they didn't even believe the word. They were hard-hearted. They had waxed hard-hearted against the word of God. But, but I've seen other people who were not intellectuals and not professors and not even educated. But they would hear the word and the Holy Spirit would begin to mess with their heart and open it up and they would see the truth, powerful truths that the professors and the religious missed. But these simple people, not just, just common garden variety, ordinary people, the Holy Spirit had pulled back magnificent truth and said, let me show you who I am. That's how revelation works. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, who do men say that I am? And they said, oh, man, they say that you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some say you're Isaiah. Jesus looked at them and he said, but who do you say that I, the son of man, am? And Peter looked at him and he said, you are the son of the living God, the Christ. And Jesus, listen to this, said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father has revealed this to you. Now Jesus has been trucking along and teaching and teaching and teaching. But he was saying, your daddy, you're the son of Jonah. Your daddy did not tell you, did not teach you this truth. My daddy did. My daddy taught you this truth. He took the word and he opened the eyes of your understanding. He pulled back your heart and said, let me show you a mystery hidden, not from us, but for us, for the hungry. Let me show you this mystery. The Son of Man is the Son of God. Wow. God, it was just like, whoa. You know, it was powerful. That's the way revelation works. The Holy Spirit reveals any and all truth about Jesus to the unregenerate sinner. People say, well, you got to have the Holy Ghost to have revelation. What? Like speaking in tongues. Kidding me? You, you couldn't get to that point had you not had revelation. You wouldn't even, you wouldn't even know to bow the knee had the Holy Spirit not pulled it open and said, let me show you. Oh, man, you bow the knee. Woo, man. So the Holy Spirit, any and all information about Jesus, that's, that uh, he, he reveals to the in, unregenerate, so they can be born again, water spirit. The Holy Spirit, and that's controversial. There, there's a lot of controversy. I don't have time to get into all that. Uh, Calvinism, different points of view on that. But I, I believe unequivocally, unequivocally, I believe it, right? The Holy Spirit reveals any and all truth about Jesus to the unregenerate sinner so they can be born again of water and the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit reveals any and all truth about Jesus to the born again believer to help him or her better understand what Jesus has truly done and who we are in him. He gives us wisdom and revelation, enlightenment, so we can know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of his glory and his inheritance in the saints? The exceeding greatness of his power 
toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him in this heavenly realm of authority, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, every name that's named, not only in this age, but in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that is all in all. You know, Psalm 22 is the psalm of the broken Christ, the crucified Christ. It is believed by many scholars that Jesus quoted the entire psalm while on the cross. It has famous scriptures in there like, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished. Others, scholars believe he quoted the whole 22nd psalm. But hey, it didn't end in the 22nd psalm. Because there's that 24th psalm that comes along that says, Lift up your heads, O ye gates. And be ye lifted up your everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory? Oh, it's the Lord. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. It's the victorious Christ. The humiliation of the Christ. Oh, but the exaltation of the Christ. And we are seated together with him in those heavenly places. Are you with me? And now, now, here's the deal. Paul understood this. Paul got it. He was advanced. He was advanced in his walk. He had gone through discover life. <laughs> and then some. Look at verse 11. Acts 19 again. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Now, N.T. Wright, I was listening to some lectures by him, Anglican guy. He used to work with the Episcopals. And I was listening to a lecture by N.T. Wright, brilliant man. He points this out. Paul was culturally aware. There were Epicureans, Stoics, academics. We've looked at this. The Epicureans thought the gods were far away. Therefore, all we could do was try to live pleasant lives. Paul said in his sermon, he said, He's not far from all of us. As your own poets have said, in him we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. He's as close as the air we breathe. The Epicureans said God was far away. He was saying he's not far from any of us. The Stoics thought the gods were everywhere and pretty much in everything like pantheists. They thought everything was doomed and doomed to repeat itself. The earth would end in a fireball and be destroyed, and then it would start all over, and everything would be exactly the same. Pretty hopeless situation. Paul said to them, God created all things. He's not in all things. He created all things. He's above all things. He and his creation are separate. There's an otherness quality about him. And then he dealt with the academicians, academics. Their verdict was still out. We just don't know there's not enough evidence. But let's just hold on to our local religion just in case, like a fire insurance policy. We don't really believe. But, you know, if it's true, I'm going to go to church anyway, you know. Check that off. Paul said at one time God winked at ignorance. But now he commands everybody to repent. It's all in 
in, in our, re, our Acts 18 and Acts 19. So gently yet firmly, Paul identifies his audience, challenges them with truth. He, he finds common ground but challenges them. And, and not only does he do that, but he challenges them in the spiritual realm as well. Remember, the anointing flows through the body of Christ to, to heal and to push the message forward. And so here you have unusual miracles taking place through Paul to wear handkerchiefs, bandanas, and aprons. Now, Paul had a trade. He worked with tents, or some say that means leather. He was a leather worker. And he had aprons, and he, it literally means sweatbands. I, was, I, I forgot. I was going to go by the store and get me a headband, you know. That would have been fun, but I never made it. But it, it literally means sweatband. So probably while he's tooling on that leather, he would sweat, and so he puts a sweatband on. Or he'd put a sweatband on his wrist, aprons, working with the leather, needling hot times. And, and somebody probably accidentally started this. And, and, and uh, uh, so we don't know exactly how Peter's shadow here healed anybody either. But here we have a, a sweatband of Paul's that touches a sick person and they're raised up healed. And it became a thing. And so they would take his aprons and his sweatbands, and that's where it started. Now, when I say this was a challenge uh, to the realm of the Spirit, it's the truth. And literally, it comes from this. Artemis, or Diana, as she was also known, was a goddess who had a temple in Ephesus that was five times the size of the Parthenon. It was massive. It had temple prostitutes. Some historians say that it served as a bank and that dignitaries from all over Asia would come and deposit their gold and their silver and their treasures there because it was well protected and they knew it was safe. These are very superstitious people. The devil had so manipulated them and gotten into their culture. There was the... Oracle of Delphi nearby, who was supposedly channeling Apollo. Apollo, the god, would speak to her. This temple of Artemis was centered around a, a meteorite or a meteor that was blackened and shaped funny, and they thought it looked like a woman, and, and it, it was said to be Artemis or Diana. It was a goddess, and they worshipped this goddess. There was an industry, we're going to see it at the end of Acts 19, there was an industry uh, where, where uh, apparently this was a multi-million dollar industry of making uh, trinkets and, and paraphernalia and stuff that you would sell for pilgrims that would come and visit the temple of Diana. And this temple of Diana and the theology behind it, there was a lot of, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it, rote and ritual and traditions and beliefs that were held. And one of the main beliefs of those that worshipped Artemis was that when they would go in the temple, it was, very, it was very lewd and crude. Like I said, they had a thousand temple prostitutes at one time. It was, it was, it was, very, uh, it was very sinful. 
very sinful, very fleshly. It was, it was, it was, and the devil's all in that stuff. You know that, right? The devil's all exploits the, the all that exploits it to the hilt, and so people are in bondage. They're all messed up. Their lives are broken. This, you know, there's a lot. Let me just say this: there's a lot of sexual brokenness in our day and time. Can, can you say Amen? We, we've got so much confusion in that area of our world. It's ridiculous. It's 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 sad. It's sad. And and Ephesus was struggling. They had a there was a demonic spirit. We can laugh and say oh, it, was, oh, it was just a meteor with these religious stupid people, but the devil was involved in that. It was spiritual oppression and bondage. There were sicknesses that were on people's lives and, and brokenness because of demonic oppression. You don't hear much preaching on this either. We act like that stuff don't happen anymore. Like, oh, that was back in the Bible days. That stuff don't happen. I'm going to tell you something. That stuff is more prevalent than ever. You know the devil and demons, demons are not having babies. They don't have babies. It's not, it's not like they have little demon families. Now you see some families, you're like, that's a demon family, right? That's not what I'm talking about. Like real demons. They're not like daddy demon, mama demon. They have little baby demons. And the, like the demon population is increasing. There's as many demons today as there was 2,000 years ago or 2 million years ago as far as we know. So you have the same amount of demonic activity or the same amount of demons, but more demonic activity. Why? There's more people. That's 7 billion souls, right, on this planet plus. And so the devil is exploiting more and more and more flesh. So here we have this theology centered around Diana. And one of the tenets of the faith was that you had to worship Diana by taking your clothes off. You would go in the temple and worship without your clothes on because they said the power of the spirit realm is hindered by clothing. The spirit realm can't flow through clothing. So Paul is preaching five hours a day, praying for people left and right. And God says, I think it's time to make a statement about old Diana. We need to put a chink in her armor. And so all of a sudden, the very sweat bands of Paul touch a sick person. All that anointing stuff I'm talking about, who we are in Christ, that anointing got on Paul's clothes. And he wasn't even, you know, taking his sweatband off. It was away from him, but it had been in contact with him. And, the, and, and God, in his sovereignty, had decided, now's the time we're going to take down Diana. And so through the clothing, and people are saying, well, that's the, I, I didn't think the spirit realm could work through clothes. You know, when you go to Diana's, you know, I tell, I, I, I tell Junior, you know, like, I don't like you going up there and worshiping. I know what goes on, and, you know, like you could, you know, there was conflicts going on, and there was this. All of a sudden, there was this realization: 
Maybe, maybe. Are you, do you, are you telling me that this, this Christ Jesus, this Jesus that you're preaching, there's a powerful anointing? Diana couldn't heal my brother-in-law. Uh, the, the priest couldn't anoint my brother-in-law. They did all kind of crazy stuff in that temple, and he's still sick. But the sweat bands of this man that's preaching in the middle of the day in a rented school touched my brother-in-law, and his, he, he got his healing just like that? Yes, that's what I'm saying. This was an affront. This was an assault on the spirit realm in Ephesus. And Jesus had an end game in mind. He was going to take that kingdom down. But listen, and it wouldn't happen in, the, in, in Paul's ministry. Paul would later die, and that temple was still up and running. But legend says, and I don't know if this is true. His history talks about it. There's legends out there. But we do know this. Uh, well, let me say this. History says that the great apostle John, who became the bishop of Ephesus, walked into that temple of Diana one day, which was five times the size of the Parthenon, and prayed about a 65-word prayer and basically said, You foul spirit, you've had your reign long enough, and I come against you in the name of the one who is higher than every name that is named in heaven and earth and below the earth. And he rebuked that spirit. It says there was an earthquake I don't know if that's exactly true, but I know from around that point on, that, that, that influence of Diana was totally gone. You know any Artemis or Diana worshipers? Well, you might know some, a crew of Artemis, right? But I'm saying that influence ended, but it started when God said, I'm going to do it in your face, and I'm going to send Paul's sweatband, you foul spirit. Spirit lying to people, keeping them in bondage and all the superstition. We're, we're going to deal with that once. And for people get super, people think that praying for cloth is super is, is superstitious. It was really originally an affront to superstition. Amen. Stand with me right now. God took down. That foul spirit that had dominated Asia Minor for so long was obliterated. (laughs) But you know where it started? Man, there's some good stuff in there. It started with an apostle who knew who he was. He wasn't perfect, he argued with Peter. He was boisterous, argumentative at times, scared, shaken and trembling. Had a good team with him, encouraged him, supported him. And he had spent years and years and years processing that message of Jesus, finding out who he was in Christ. He exploded that word on these people and the revelation of the Holy Spirit got a hold of them. And that church at Ephesus was powerful. Oh, powerful. Powerful. In Antioch, just a little bit earlier, they were first called Christians there. Christ-like. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It means anointed one. This church was anointed. Powerful. I'm hungry for that. I'm just going to be honest with you. That's what I'm hungry for. That's what I'm hungry for. 
It was planted deep in my soul many years ago. There is a powerful church that God is wanting to raise up in this world. And I believe that we are part of that church. I believe that God has placed us in the kingdom for such a time as this. And I think even more strategically right here locally, we're put here at the corner of Airline and Daigle for a reason. You've been brought into this place for a reason. Let's see what it is, right? Let's find out who we are in Christ. Let's get on our faces before God this year. Let's fast and pray and seek His face. Turn from our wicked ways. There's some foul spirits that God wants to give us some dominion over in this place, in this area, in this region. He wants to make an impact. Hallelujah. I lift your hands to Him right now. Can you, can you just love Him right now? Jesus, we love you.